Well, have you ever had news that you just had to share? Uh, some news that was, you know, like bursting to get out of you. Uh, like when I rang up my mum and dad to let them know I was engaged. Or when your sporting team wins a major, a major game and you just need to ring someone and share the moment. It can be sad news though too, can't it? Sad news that you have to share. I can remember the night my mum had to ring me to let me know that dad had died. Or it could be a warning that you need to tell people about. Like surf lifesavers, they have to tell people when there's a shark in the water. News can be so sad or so good or so important that you just have to tell people. What we're going to see this morning is that the news of Christ is like that. The news of Christ is so good and so important that we just have to tell people about him. Now, before we look at chapter 5, it'd be good just to quickly get a recap of the previous four chapters. Uh, we looked at them a few weeks ago, so just a quick reminder. Hopefully you remember the entire letter of 2 Corinthians is about everything that we do being for the comfort of others. So it might be sharing the comfort of God that you yourself have received and sharing that with others, or it might be going through distress yourself so that others might know the comfort of God. But whatever, everything we do is so that others would know God's comfort. So in chapter 1, Paul writes of going through distress uh, when he writes the Corinthians a letter. Chapters 2 and 3, Paul again goes through distress so that the Corinthians would know the glory of Christ. Chapter 4, Paul teaches of the glorious future that we have in store for us in the new creation. And he wrote that so that the Corinthians would endure the distresses of this life so that they would persevere and enjoy the comfort of God in the next. We're picking it up now in chapter 5, and what Paul moves on to is how when you know the comfort of God that we have in Christ, you can't help but share that with others. Chapter 5, we're given three compelling reasons why we try and persuade people about Jesus. Three realities, three truths, that if we honestly believe them, genuinely believe them, then we'll walk over broken glass to make sure that other people hear about his son. The first is our fear of Christ. Knowing that Christ is judge, we try and persuade people that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have a look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, it's helpful to know that Paul here is talking to Christians and he's saying that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Our Christian lives will be brought to bear before our Lord. Christ himself will look you in the eye and examine your life and he will weigh up your following of him for what it's worth. Now, does that unnerve you a bit? Perhaps a bit frightening? Uh, Paul says it should be. Uh, Look at verse 11. After saying that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he then says, verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Our knowing the fear of the Lord is our knowing that Christ is judge. Now the fear he's speaking of here is not the fear of Christ judging us and then sending us into hell. Uh, Paul's writing to Christians, and just back in verse 8, he's spoken of how we prefer to be at home with the Lord. So it's not the fear of being condemned by God and having his fury unleashed on you. Now, the fear that Paul writes of here, it's reverent fear. 
It's standing in awe of God. It's knowing the gravity and the majesty of God, knowing all that he did in his son so that you might be his child and so being in awe and respect, having a deep reverence for God. The last thing you want to do is to do the wrong thing by him. And as God's children, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be examined. No condemnation, but examination. So let's pick on me. I will stand before the Lord and judge of all the earth, the one who died for me, that I might be forgiven of all my sin and freely live in his service. The Lord Jesus himself will look me over. He will judge my life for what I did as his servant. And he'll do the same to you. He'll assess our love for him and our indifference of him. He'll assess our laziness, our self-control, our selfishness, our gentleness, our bitterness, our thankfulness, our entire lives. We will come before the judgment seat of Christ. That, I reckon, is frightening enough for us who do know the Lord Jesus and have the guarantee of eternal life. So what about for those who don't know him? This is what Paul has in mind in verse 11. We know what it is to fear the Lord and we're God's children. So what's judgment, judgment day going to be like for those who don't know Christ? Well, Jesus himself said what it'll be like. He said that for the enemies of God, judgment day will be like being thrown into a fiery lake of sulfur forever. Or sitting, weeping, gnashing your teeth rotting in your flesh and being eaten away by worms forever. And when you know that that magnitude of horror is coming on all those who don't turn to Christ for mercy, well, you've just got to try and persuade people about Jesus, don't you? Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Your friendly neighbour that you chat to every now and again. The workmate you see every other day. Your brother, your sister, your mum, your dad. The person in front of you at the checkout. Your friends at school. The people uh, that you chat to online. Maybe even the person you're sitting next to right now. Do any of them need persuading about Christ? And if so, do you try? Or are you just going to let them slide into the terrifying judgment of God? You can talk to them. You can introduce them to someone else who can help explain Jesus to them. You can give them a book. You can send them a thought-provoking Christmas card. You can invite them to our September dinners. You can invite them to the women's event coming up if they're a lady. You can chat to that mate you brought to the men and meat night about the talk and see what he thought of it. But if you know what it is to fear the Lord, then do something for them, won't you? Because the judgment seat of Christ will be unnerving enough for us who do know the Lord Jesus, let alone for those who don't. But it's not just our reverent fear of Christ, it's also the love of Christ that compels us to persuade people about Jesus. This is the second reality, the second truth. Jesus Christ loves sinners. And so we try to persuade them that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13. Paul says, if we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. 
Now just notice quickly, everything Paul does, if he's in his right mind, if he's out of his mind, whatever, everything he does is for the sake of God and others, that other people would know the glory of God in Christ. Now why does he do that? Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Christ's love compels Paul to persuade people about Jesus. But why? Why does Christ's love compel him? Because uh, Mother Teresa's love, that doesn't compel me to go and work in some slum somewhere. What is it about Christ's love that compels and constrains us to tell others about Jesus? Well, look at verse 14 again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. To understand how Christ's love compels us to tell people about Jesus, you need to be convinced, in Paul's words, that Christ died for all. Because, of course, you might not be convinced. There was a time when Paul himself wasn't convinced that Christ died for all. Before Paul became a Christian, he was convinced that Christ didn't die for all. He just died for himself. Paul was sure that this Jesus of Nazareth was a heretic. He died because he claimed to be divine. As far as Paul was concerned, Jesus of Nazareth was a blasphemous heretic who deserved the cursed death of crucifixion. Jesus certainly wasn't the Christ, God's chosen king to judge and rule the world. But then came the day when Paul met Jesus of Nazareth after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. And so Paul was convinced that the death of Jesus of Nazareth, it was no ordinary death, that in fact Jesus is the Christ of God, the ruler of the world, the judge of the living and the dead, so that when Jesus died, it was in fact God himself in love laying down his life for people, that the Christ of all people had actually died under the judgment of God so that sinners of all people could go free, forgiven by God. Now that is a ridiculous swap. That is extraordinary love. Clearly, Christ doesn't want people to go to hell. And Christ died so that people would no longer live for themselves, but they would live for him. Have a look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And was raised again. You see, Jesus is so significant that he divides all people into either living for themselves or living for Christ. You know how there's those who have seen Star Wars and those who haven't? There's those who like oysters and those who don't? Well, really and truly, for everyone in the entire world, there are those who know Christ And those who don't. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You see, we can't regard people from a worldly point of view any longer. Not according to their wealth or their job or their house or their nationality or their heritage or their skin colour. Because fundamentally, at our basic core, everyone you know... Everyone you meet, your family, your butcher, your politician, everyone in the entire world is either Christian or not Christian, saved or not saved, forgiven or unforgiven, going to the new creation 
or going to hell. But we will only see people this way if we're convinced that it was the Christ who died for all and that he did it in love. That the Lord Jesus deeply and profoundly doesn't want people to go to hell. He does not delight in people, sinners, being condemned. Out of love, Paul says, Christ died for all. And so we're to try and persuade people to surrender their lives and to live for Jesus. Now, we've got reason enough, don't we, to go out and try and persuade people about him? But Paul's got one more reason. And it's because we know the plan of God. The death of Christ wasn't simply an amazing act of love. There was a purpose to it. There was a plan. And that plan was that in Christ's death, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was turning his enemies into his friends. He was bringing peace where there was war. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Christ died in love, we know that. Here we're told what God was doing in Christ's death, what his plan was, and it's this, that in Christ's death, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, God reconciling the world to himself assumes that the world's an enemy of God because only enemies need to be reconciled. It's only those having a fight who need to make peace. And the world was at war with God. But in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And how did he do that? Well, we're told at the end of verse 19, by not counting our sins against us. Now, that makes sense when you think about it. For God to reconcile us to himself, he has to deal with our sin, doesn't he? Because it's our sin that makes us the enemy of God. Because sin is our attitude of defiance toward God. It's that God says he's in charge and we say he's not. It's that God says he knows what's best and we say he doesn't. It's that God says he made us and he owns us and we say we don't want to be owned by God, we want to own ourselves. It's that God showers us with his love and we can't even be bothered to say thank you. It's that God says he can't let us live like this forever and we say we're not even sure if you exist. Sin is our disgusting neglect and disobedience and ignorance of God where we live our lives as if we're in charge. Sin makes us quite obviously the enemies of God. But God had a wonderful plan. And he was reconciling the world to himself in Christ by not counting our sin against us. But how does that work? Because it sounds like a bit of a fudge, doesn't it? I mean, what's God doing? Is he just pretending that we didn't sin? Is that how he's not counting our sin against us? You know, sweep our sin under the carpet, pretend it didn't happen? Because you can't do that. Where's Bruce? Bruce, are you happy to be pretended to be the bad guy? I meant to ask you this before. Is that okay? Is it okay if I make you out to be the bad guy? It's only an illustration. This is not true, okay? I want you to imagine that right now Bruce hops up, grabs a knife and murders my wife, Catherine, right here. Now, what's going to happen next is a few people are going to 
race up, pin Bruce to the ground. Some people are going to see what Catherine's doing, if she's okay, which she's not. Um, somebody's going to run to the, the back and ring the police and ring the ambulance and the day comes for the court trial. Catherine's dead. Kay comes for the court trial. We are all summoned into the court. We are all brought forward as witnesses. We all testify to the, the murder of Catherine at the, the cold-blooded hand of Bruce Beatty. Bruce, even during the trial, confesses that, yes, he pleads guilty. Yes, I did murder Catherine. And now comes time for the, the judge to, to give his decision. And on his seat he says, well, it's very clear to this court, Bruce Beatty, that you murdered Catherine Blanche. But I tell you what, we're just going to pretend you didn't do it. You can go free, and if it's okay, please don't do that sort of thing again. Now, how would we feel if that really... Forget you. How would I feel if that really happened? You can't do that, can you? That is an outrage. Crimes need to be punished. You cannot do that. It's the same with our sins. We commit crimes not just against each other, but against the God of the universe. God can't just pretend they didn't happen. Sins have to be punished. Now, this is quite different to what you hear some people say. Lots of people think that when they face God, things will be okay. You know, God's loving, God's merciful, God's nice. Oh, look, I know I'm not perfect, but he'll let me go. It'll be okay. God can't do that. I don't know if you've ever thought of there being things that God can't do, but God can't pretend that sin doesn't matter. God can't pretend that sin didn't happen. So let's pick on me again. How can God not count my sins against me? Because my sins have to be punished. How on earth could God reconcile me to himself? Well, Paul tells us, it's in verse 21. Have a look there. This is amazing. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had no sin, but he became sin for us. So that when he died, it was our sin being dealt with. God didn't just sweep our sin under the carpet. God dealt with it in Christ, dying in the place of sinners, as he took their sin upon himself. On July the 29th, 2006, Melbourne woman Kimberly Deer, she was in America preparing to make her first skydive. Uh, On camera, before she left the tarmac, she pointed to her instructor, Robert Cook, and said, this is the man that's going to save my life. And sadly, those words were to become all too true. Moments after takeoff, the engine failed, and the plane carrying the eight people crashed. In the 16 seconds it took for the plane to fall, Robert turned to Kimberly and told her to focus on his instructions. He clipped his harness to hers and told her to brace herself using his body as to cushion the fall. And Robert was killed on impact. Kimberly, though, survived despite extensive injuries. After the accident, Kimberly said these words, There aren't many people who would put their life on the line for a stranger. You might do it for the people you love, but would you do it for someone you just met? Robert Cook put his life on the line for a stranger. Jesus Christ put his life on the line for sinners. He who knew no sin became sin for us. In his death he took our place, he took our sin 
so that we could be reconciled to God. No longer staring down the barrel of his judgment, but instead blessed with the guarantee of eternal life. And it only comes in Christ. Which is why what follows in chapter 6 is Paul's desperate urging of the Corinthians to receive God's grace. The Corinthians were in danger of turning their back on Christ and the urging that Paul gives them is the same urging you and I should give each other if any of us are in danger of turning our back on Christ. It's the same urging we should give those we know who don't yet know the Lord Jesus because everyone needs him. Chapter 6 verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. You and I can enjoy God's favour now. You and I can share in God's salvation now. You and I can be reconciled to God now. Anyone who asks God for the forgiveness of their sins will be forgiven now. So if you're sitting here now and you're not reconciled to God, you haven't asked God to forgive you. You haven't asked God to save you from Christ's coming judgment. Then now is the time. Ask God today. I urge you, Do not walk out of here without asking God. But for those of us who already have been reconciled to God, I'm hoping that what we've seen is that we've been given three reasons why we would try and persuade people about Jesus. Three reasons we'd urge them to become Christian. One, because Christ's judgment is coming. Two, because in love Christ died for people. And three, Because Christ died in order to reconcile people to God. Now, do you believe those things? The judgment of Christ, the love of Christ, the plan of God. Do you honestly believe them? Because if you do, then you should find yourself compelled, forced, constrained to try and persuade people about Jesus. Now, if you don't, if you don't feel compelled that even as I've been speaking, you keep coming up with reasons why this doesn't really apply to you, talking to people about Jesus, it's not really your thing, you're no good at it. We do well to remember that it wasn't the Apostle Paul's thing either. He got beaten up for it, imprisoned, flogged. By his own admission, he wasn't a good speaker. He had great anxiety for the people he spoke to. Telling people about Jesus was not his cup of tea. But because he feared Christ because he was convinced of the love of Christ and because he knew the plan of God for reconciling people through Christ, Paul couldn't help but tell people, even though it wasn't his thing. But look, instead of focusing on the negative of how it isn't your thing to talk to people about Jesus, instead of focusing on you and your... Why not instead focus on Jesus? Focus on what we've learned about him from God's word here this morning, that Christ is coming in judgment. That in love, Christ died for people. He doesn't want people to go to hell. And that in Christ's death, people are reconciled to God. Let these truths control your thoughts. View people from the perspective of Christ, that he is the loving judge of all people. And so go and talk to people about Jesus. Introduce them to others who can help you. Give away books. 
invite them to our September dinners. Let's do whatever we can so that others would turn to Christ, be saved and be reconciled. Because these things and so much more only come through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen here this morning from 2 Corinthians. Father, help us to understand the truth that Christ is the judge and that in love he died, that we could be reconciled to you. And Father, we pray that we would understand these truths and live by them, that that we would have our trust in Jesus to make us your friends and to give us eternal life. And that we would, knowing the people around us, do all we can to try and persuade them that they need Jesus. And Father, for any of us here this morning that do not yet know you, are not yet reconciled to you through the death of Christ on our behalf, Father, please convince them, persuade them that, Father, they might turn to you and enjoy your favour and your salvation. Amen.